0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. For the Sunday debate this week, we're dipping back into the archive all the way back to 2009, when we gathered leading thinkers to attempt to answer some of the biggest questions of all. Is there a God? And what role does religion play in our society? Has atheism replaced religion as the new faith of the secular age? That was a question we put to a panel back in 2009. The lineup included the former Bishop of Oxford, Richard Harris, former editor of the Daily Telegraph, Charles Moore, science author, Richard Dawkins, and philosopher, A.C. Grayling. Hosting the discussion was educator, commentator, and historian, Anthony Seldon. Let's join the debate now.
1: Welcome everybody, it's going to be an absolutely marvellous debate tonight. Uh, This is the topic of the millennium and how perspicacious of all of you to manage to get uh, tickets tonight uh, to be here. We are are going to have a tremendous time, we've got an outstanding panel on both sides, Uh, we have uh, a tremendous motion, we have a wonderful audience uh, and you've managed to brave your way through hellish weather. So I can't say that, can I? That's uh, that's compromising my ne- neutrality. But let's get straight on. Uh, straight on, and we're going to start with Richard Harris. Richard Harris, former Bishop of Oxford. Richard.
2: Good evening, everybody. It's very natural for parents to be proud of their children, and three mothers were once discussing discussing their achievements. One said, my son's an ambassador. When he comes into the room, he's addressed as Your Excellency. Uh, To which the second mother responded, my son's a cardinal. When he comes into the room, people call him Your Eminence. The third mother simply said, my son is six foot half and a half feet tall with shoulders as wide as a barn. When he comes into the room, people get to their feet and say, my God. (laughs) Obviously, nobody here believes in that kind of God. And this poses the question of what God we have in our minds when we say we believe or we do not believe. That is the question, ladies and gentlemen, at the heart of this uh, debate. What kind of God do we accept or reject, because there are many, many different kinds of atheism. So let me begin by emphasizing that I understand all too well and have the deepest respect for certain forms of atheism. The atheism of Camus in La Peste, or Ivan Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov, haunts and challenges believers, perhaps even more than unbelievers. It's attack dogs, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and, very sadly, from my point of view, my friend Richard Dawkins who writes such wonderfully inspiring books on uh, science. So it is not atheism as such which is being debated this evening, which in some forms I very deeply respect, but this new atheism that is the new fundamentalism. Now, I would suggest that fundamentalism has four main characteristics. First of all, it's impervious to the facts. Nothing is allowed to count against it. Creationism, the belief that the world was created in a very short time, as it were, ready uh, made, is denied by every possible branch of science, cosmology, paleontology, geology, etc. It ignores the fact that the greatest philosophers in Western uh, society down the ages for 2,000 years or more have either been religious believers or have had a philosophy which points to religious belief. They simply do not take that into account. They ignore the fact that the great inspiration behind Western art over countless centuries has been the Christian faith and it continues to be so. Two poets universally regarded as the greatest poets of the 20th century, T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden, were both serious Christians. Today you could count half a dozen or more of the world's greatest composers who are passionate about the Christian inspiration of their music. James Macmillan, Arvo O'Pert, John Tavener, just mentioned three. But all this, the new fundamentalists simply seem to block out of their minds altogether and don't let it count against them. And this leads to the second feature of fundamentalism. It always picks on the weakest points in another person's argument. But is it not true that if you're really confident of your case, you face the opponent's strongest argument, you don't simply always focus on their weakest arguments? And then, thirdly, this uh, points uh, to the kind of God which is so often criticized. Many of you uh, will have read Philip Pullman's wonderful, wonderful book The Dark Materials. But can you remember the kind of God that is pictured in that? Uh, A kind of wizened, wizened old human being, nothing better. And as a young child said once when they read that book, I never believed in that kind of God. And nor do Christian uh, believers. And this points to the fourth and final reason why the new atheism can be described as the new uh, fundamentalism. And that is, it focuses only on the kind of God in whom creationists uh, believe. It looks as though religious fundamentalism and atheistic fundamentalism need each other and feed on on each other. Um, What would happen if they actually moved away from a focus upon that creationist God, uh, upon uh, the, what you might call the, class- the God of classical Christian uh, the- theism. And these four features uh, of fundamentalism, whether it's religious fundamentalism or atheistic fundamentalism, means that there is a great lack uh, of what uh, the 19th century poet Robert Browning uh, called the grand perhaps. Ladies and gentlemen, they don't allow that grand perhaps and surely. That's one of the features of fundamentalism. They don't really allow that to count against them. The kind of God I believe in is very, very different from the kind of God which they are attacking. It's the kind of of God which is revealed for me at the end uh, of Hugo Grin's, Rabbi Hugo Grin's uh, great uh, uh, autobiography, where he says he was in Auschwitz as a child, he hoped God would rescue him, that God never came, and he cried and cried for hours, and then he, he realized uh, that, uh, as he says, people sometimes ask me, where was God in Auschwitz? I believe that God was there himself, he said, violated and blasphemed. The real question is, where was man in Auschwitz? So I suggest at the heart of this debate is the kind of God we do believe in or do not believe in. Thank you very much
1: indeed. Richard Harris there. Uh, Manfully combating against an act of God with a downpour or an act of... um, just an act, actually. Um, But now we're going to go straight on to A.C. Grayling, a very well-known philosopher, Uh, academic author, uh, author of Against All Gods, apart from other books, A.C. Grayling.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, there there is a a confrontation between people who have religious commitment and those who don't, and it has become a rather bad-tempered one since 9-11, since the atrocities in New York and Washington. Um, In 2001 and that date what happened on that date I think changed the nature of the debate between people on either side of this confrontation prior to it I think if people had a religious commitment of some kind generally speaking in this country at least they kept it to themselves their uh, religious proclivities were rather like their sex life they didn't talk about it at dinner parties very much And when one met somebody, if one wasn't oneself religious, who is religious, one wouldn't press the point very much. One would treat them rather uh, as if there had been a a death in the family, which in the case of Christianity is reasonably apt. Um, (laughs) Since uh, uh, 2001, however, um, things have changed. And they've changed in that people who don't have a religious commitment have very often spoken out robustly and uncompromisingly and have been very frank about their point of view. And it is this, I think, the tone of the discussion which has uh, alarmed um, people who are defenders and apologists for religion. And it puts me in mind, rather, of a cartoon I saw recently which has two panels. And in the first panel, there is a a cleric And he's brandishing a religious symbol of some kind, as it might be a crucifix if he's a Christian or a a crescent if he's a Muslim. And he's brandishing this and he's bashing somebody over the head with it. And as he does so, he shouts with each blow, he shouts, infidel, blasphemer, homosexual, uppity woman, uh, abortionist. And finally, the person being bashed over the head gets rather exasperated and takes the religious symbol and makes as if to break it over her knee, at which the cleric says, hey, 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 respect. (laughs) And that, I think, absolutely sums up... (laughs) The person who drew that cartoon would be delighted. That, That rather sums up the rhetorical position today. What one must understand is this, that there are charges on both sides of the debate about not understanding the other person's point of view. Uh, People of a a, a religious uh, commitment say this about those who don't share their views. They say, you don't understand our position, what it's like to have a commitment, what it means to us. And that's an odd thing for them to say because, of course, the great majority of people who are not religious used to be and have become non-religious because they've given up the commitment that they were uh, led into his children, taught at school, taught by their community, church, mosque, temple, synagogue. They've given it up sometimes with a great deal of difficulty and pain, but they understand very well what was involved and what the story is that uh, their opponents in the discussion um, are committed to. But people on the religious side of the debate don't really quite see always what the point is in those who oppose them. And that's what I'd like very, very briefly to explain. Because, in fact, there are three quite separate issues here, although they naturally connect with one another. There is the question of the metaphysical uh, nature of the universe, what kinds of things there are in the universe. People who are religious, or almost all of them anyway, think that there are supernatural agencies of some kind in the universe. Gods, goddesses, angels and archangels, demons, devils. And people who don't share that view are called by religious people atheists. That's a religious term used to describe people who don't share the metaphysics of the religious. Now, I much rather call myself an affariist or an agoblinist or an apixiist and so on and so on for all the things that I don't believe exist. But if I were to call myself an a or an a pixiist it would move me onto the ground of those people who believe in fairies and pixies, as if that was a discussion worth having. My point is that I don't think that there are supernatural agencies in the world on very, very good and considered grounds. The second thing, and this really is where the debate takes off, is secularism and you don't have to be a, an atheist or an Apixist to be a secularist you might be a religious secularist secularist is somebody who believes that questions of public policy questions of the complex pluralistic society we live in should not be under the government of any one religion or indeed of the religions working in committee secularism is about the place of religious faith in the public square and what a reasonable secularist thinks and should think is this, that religion and religious organizations have every right to exist and every right to have its say, but it has no greater right than any other self-constituted, self-elected interest group in society. And that, that I think, is, is where a good deal of the acerbity enters the debate. I'll give you an example. As you know, President Obama is trying to get some legislation through Congress in in Washington at the moment to uh, have a a national health care insurance scheme. Just very recently, in the last few days, the Roman Catholic Church, which is a very powerful lobby in the United States, has succeeded in uh, getting a clause accepted by the House of Representatives, uh, which provides that nobody will benefit from this national health insurance scheme uh, in order to get a termination of pregnancy. To, to get an abortion. It's just one very small example. one can cite many, many examples across many societies, for example, Taliban governed areas of Afghanistan where women and girls are not allowed education or access to health care and, and the like, where access to social goods of various kinds are denied because of questions of dogma, because a particular uh, religious outlook doesn't favour that way of doing things or thinking about things. When when, uh, religious organizations have that impact on the lives of individuals in society, denying women their their rightful place uh, in in education, denying the opportunity for people to make choices about what happens in their personal lives, where there is too much interference in the public square. Remember, in our own country, um, we have an established religion which allows representatives of the established church to sit in the legislature and to vote on laws that affect us all. So I mentioned atheism, mentioned secularism there, and finally there is an aspect of the debate which is more or less left out of account altogether. And that is that people who don't have a religious commitment are very often humanist in their outlook, in their ethics. And humanism is a view about the the good for human individuals and the good for society, which tries to premise itself on our very best understanding of of human nature and the the human condition, of how things are for human beings. And it tries to uh, erect a a structure of ethical concern um, between individuals, urging the importance of good relationships between people, respect between human individuals on the basis of their human individuality, not on the basis of some identity that they uh, choose for themselves, in the hope of trying to make this a collegial, cooperative, and flourishing world. That aspect of the debate is suppressed because the churches, the religious bodies, arrogate to themselves the claim that only they um, really have the right view about ethics, about the right way to live. So I would argue that given the fact that to be a non-believer, is to stand in a relation to religion in the same way as the non-stamp collector Uh, Stands to the stamp collector, that is, you just simply don't share that view. It's extremely hard indeed to be a fundamentalist non stamp collector. You just don't take that particular view, and the fact that you don't says nothing else about what you believe and how you behave. Thank you very much.
1: you now at this moment what in fact the motion is again. It is that the atheism is the new fundamentalism and there is a very interesting audience vote on that initially, Will there'll be a second vote at the end of the debate. Um, and now I'm going to ask Charles Moore, uh, former editor of the Daily Telegraph, uh, very regular columnist now, and Charles is going to be speaking for the motion.
4: There is, a certain, um, there is a certain absurdity, I think, in all the, these debates on this subject because great minds have wrestled with them throughout history. And Milton wrote Paradise Lost, which is the greatest long poem in, in the English language, to justify, uh, to, to assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. And obviously, I and not even the bishop are capable of doing that very effectively tonight. But one of the strange things about our opponents I think is that they don't see the difficulty of this subject to them the truth is evident and god and religion are evidently untrue I think that what they think they're doing is they're shining a clear light of reason on the subject but I would say that the light that they're casting is rather like the light the searchlight that the guards use in one of those war films it sweeps wildly across the sky and sometimes pointing vainly upwards, sometimes rushing past its intended target, and sometimes, almost by chance, fixing upon the poor prisoners trying to escape to freedom. And standing behind its pitiless beam, Commandant Dawkins orders the victims to be gunned down. (laughs) Uh, Our opponents tonight claim to speak for atheism. They speak with anger, and with certainty. All those of us who were against fundamentalism should unite against their cause. What is it that we find so distasteful about fundamentalists? It's not that they believe something passionately. That can be a good thing. It's not even that they're stupid. Some of them are very clever. Surely what we find so unattractive about fundamentalism is the attitude that it discloses to the truth and to other people. First, to the truth. Instead of the truth being something which expands the mind, fundamentalists turn it into a harsh and narrow test to which humanity is forced to submit. Natural selection explains the whole of life, proclaims Richard Dawkins, and whatever else is said is wrong. In societies where fundamentalists gain power, such as modern Iran or Lenin's Russia, such narrow ideas of truth are imposed and brutally policed. Second, the attitude to other people. The fundamentalist attitude to those who do not accept his truth is at best pitying and at worst murderous. He thinks such people must be defective, they must be stupid or deluded. Richard's book is called The God Delusion or Evil. Professor Dawkins sees the whole debate as a whodunit, some gigantic game of Cluedo, and he thinks he knows who is guilty. It was the Reverend Green who did it with the Bible in the nursery. (laughs) And he wishes to punish him. For the fun. (laughs) The author writes with pride, and it's the pride of a boxer who thinks he's knocked somebody out. It's part of our opponent's fundamentalist position that they don't really distinguish between fundamentalism and other forms of religious belief. Just as followers of Bin Laden will say that all infidels are damned, so these hyper-atheists say that all religion is equally contemptible. It seems to me that's like saying that fascists and liberals are really the same because both of them believe in politics. It's a grotesque parody of religious thought. In an extraordinary passage in his book, Professor Dawkins points out that members of Mensa, the Society of People with a High IQ, tend to be atheists. He also says that there are few atheists in prison. Therefore, he thinks, atheists are better, brighter people than believers. Like a clever schoolboy, he thinks that only brain power matters. Well, there are plenty of examples of brain power being put to bad use. What Winston Churchill famously called the lights of perverted science have beamed with a particularly ghastly brightness in modern times. I expect that Dr Mengele, who conducted live experiments on children for the Nazis, was a man of very high IQ. But that's not my main point. My main point here is that Professor Dawkins' attitude to the life of the mind is one of conquest. Far be it from me to disparage brain power, I thank God, literally, I thank God, for the achievements of science and for all other intellectual achievements. But is it really the case that human beings are less valuable because they are stupid or ill-educated or poor or sick or disabled? The African peasant woman who sacrifices herself to, to save her starving child stands higher in some important sense even than the president of the Royal Society though I have no objection to that distinguished gentleman. The prisoner, whose faith Professor Dawkins looks down on with such disdain, understands something about the human predicament which is denied to those who worship only success. It's a unique feature of serious religion that it appeals both to some of the best minds who have ever lived and to the most unfortunate people in the world. It is also often very clearly grasped And this is something which Professor Dawkins really hates, by children. Now why? Why do the great religions, especially Christianity, put such store by the poor and the weak, the very young and the very old? I think it is because we can see what Cardinal Newman called the greatness and the littleness of man, we see the huge human capacity for achievement, invention, heroism, beauty, and love juxtaposed sometimes in the very same human beings with cruelty, vanity, hatred, greed, and violence. And we're therefore profoundly unconvinced by explanations which are reductive and self-aggrandizing. We know that a world run by members of Mensa would not be a better place and instead we are attracted by paradox. We recognize truth in sentences which say that only when you are poor can you be rich, only when you are weak can you be strong, only when you die can you live. We do not abandon the power of reason, but we are aware of the ineradicable incongruity of our existence. As I say, our greatness and our littleness. So how could we be bored by what we have already discovered. We're fascinated by it. We can never stop reflecting on life's beauty and happiness sadness and strangeness. And this means that we embrace forms of thought and communication which fundamentalists deride. So what we are saying to Professor Dawkins and Professor Grayling and all the rest of these fundamentalists tonight is what Hamlet says to Horatio. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Thank you. Thank you very
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on stage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one of the kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. netsuite.com/squared.
1: Well, I, I'd certainly make an observation at this stage, that, which is that the atheists are slightly better timekeepers. Uh, and Rick, we're on to Richard Dawkins now. Richard Dawkins, author of *God Delusion*, amongst many other books, and is himself, yes, an atheist.
5: fundamentalism means different things to different people, but I think there are two elements that are common. First is blind obedience to a holy book, regardless of evidence. And this is what uh, Richard Harris meant by impervious to facts. And the second is extremism. There is no holy book of atheism, and never could be. Atheism is not a belief system. There's no catechism of atheism, no 39 articles, no Torah, no Koran. There is no book, only publicly verifiable evidence. And that's anything but fundamentalist, because it contains a commitment to change as new evidence comes in. One of the many lies told about us is that we are dogmatically certain that we know the truth, know everything that is to be known. I think this is what Richard Harris meant by don't allow the grand perhaps. On the contrary, we glory in what we don't yet know. And that's the meaning of the quotation that Charles Moore Attributed to me, it's actually uh, Matt Ridley, my friend Matt Ridley, probably his friend Matt Ridley as well, um, who said that uh, he was bored by what we already know. It's not really that we're bored by what we already know, but we're so excited by what it leads on to, which is what we don't know. We want to roll up our sleeves and get down to knowing more. And that, of course, is the real significance for a scientist of the gaps. In our knowledge. To a religious person, a gap in our knowledge is likely to signify something that God did. You don't need to ask questions anymore because God simply did it. We, however, admit with some excitement that there are gaps in our knowledge, gaps waiting to be filled. Gaps do not provide a license to fill them with any old stuff that we happen to make up. And most certainly, they don't provide a license for any old stuff that happened to be made up by a tribe of ignorant, desert nomads and just happened to get into some holy book or other. In fact, if we're going to throw around accusations of dogmatic over-certainty, the boot is on the other foot with a vengeance. Even nice middle-of-the-road vicars and bishops are profligate with their certainties. They'll go into the pulpit and tell the congregation, God wants us to do X. God doesn't want us to do Y. How do you know? When did you ever hear a priest say, I think the balance of probability suggests that God wants X? When did you ever hear from a pulpit We are waiting for further evidence. Let me turn now to the second meaning of fundamentalism, extremism. We are accused of being extremists. We new atheists are said to be no better than the Muslim extremists who hijack planes and fly them into buildings, or than the fundamentalist Christians who blow up abortion clinics. When was the last time you read of anybody who blew up anything in the name of atheism? Not blew something up and happened to be an atheist, blew something up in the name of atheism. Atheism doesn't have any faith schools. If we did, by the way, we wouldn't teach them atheism, we'd teach them critical thinking and how to make up their own minds. And you can be absolutely sure that we would not teach them to employ violence and certainly not suicide attacks. There is no logical pathway leading from atheism to violence. There most certainly are logical pathways leading from religion to violence. Now, of course, not many religious individuals follow those pathways to their logical conclusion, thank goodness. But there is a logical pathway from the Koran, for example, and it only takes a minority To be lured down it. For atheists, there is no such logical pathway. The nearest we get to violence is in the words we use. And there's a big difference. It's a grave misuse of the word extremism to say that atheists are just as extreme as religious extremists. As Victor Stenger, the physicist, has pithily put it in a slogan that might look well on the side of a bus, perhaps. Science flies you to the moon. Religion flies you into buildings. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, atheists such as me have been accused of using the language of extremism. We are strident, shrill, intolerant, aggressive, arrogant. We worship the mind rather than the soul, rather than the heart rather than the gut, perhaps one might say, to parody Charles Moore. We are accused of giving offence. Well, I think a great deal of this stems simply from the fact that religion has for so long been feather-bedded. Our whole society, the non-religious as well as religious portions of it, has bought into the fiction that it's somehow bad manners to criticise religion. Douglas Adams put it beautifully in an impromptu speech in Cambridge in 1998. Religion has certain ideas at the heart of it which we call sacred or holy or whatever. What it means is, here is an idea or a notion that you're not allowed to say anything bad about. You're just not. Why not? Because you're not. We're used to not challenging religious ideas. But it's very interesting how much of a furore Richard creates when he does it. Everybody gets absolutely frantic about it because you're not allowed to say these things. So when somebody like me says something even mildly critical of religion, it is heard as strident and aggressive, even if it's actually less so than would be perfectly acceptable if it were anything other than religion that was being criticised. There's nothing really new about the so-called new atheists. Nothing new in what we say. The only thing new about us is that we speak up and we call a spade a spade. This is not fundamentalism. It's just honest clarity of expression. We use our brains rather than our gut. New atheism speaks clearly. This used not to happen. Atheists were supposed to know their place, to shut up and respect, automatically, religious faith. I love a quotation from Johann Hari who said, I respect you too much to respect your ridiculous ideas. So entrenched is the assumption, implicitly accepted for centuries by religious and non-religious alike, that religion must automatically be respected, that even clarity is heard as offensive, as fundamentalist indeed. I'm confident that this audience will not be swayed by such pussyfootery and will vote with their heads instead of with their guts, vote against this motion. Thank you.
1: thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Richard, and you'll be very glad to know that you're in the school which is teaching critical thinking, philosophy, and indeed thinking to every single student. You'll be less pleased to hear that we're also teaching Christianity and Buddhism and, and Hinduism, but, uh, you know, we're, we try and uh, cover all different types here. How have you voted? Well, don't knows. Um, there's some two of 200 of you haven't voted at all so far, but amongst the don't-knows, 389. uh, Those voting for the motion, which to remind you is that atheism is the new fundamentalism, 333, and against, this is before the debate voting as you were coming in, against the motion, 675. The question is, how is that going to transfer during the course of the evening now you've heard the debate? And let's move straight on to the questions, please.
4: Um, hello. I am interested there can be fundamentalists on both sides, it seems to me. It's very easy to pick out people who are fundamentalists. Uh, what are The argument that uh, Richard Dawkins was putting, which was that uh, you cannot have a fundamentalist on the atheist side. Uh, is it not a fundamentalist position to say
1: there is no God? And then a quick response from, first of all, Charles Moore. Uh,
4: Did you notice that atheist bus campaign that they had uh, on the side, it said, there's probably no God. And the reason they said that, I think, is they realized they were in a bit of a muddle about this because um, they could only truthfully say, according to their own position, that there's probably no God because if they said there is no God... They would be making a statement of faith, and of course they feel they mustn't do that. So they were actually in a bit of a muddle about what, what on earth they were talking about. Uh, what, what Richard could, doesn't, uh, Richard's Rich not
5: in a muddle. What best. could be more fundamentalist than, than than saying there is definitely no God? We demonstrated our lack of fundamentalism by saying the proper scientific thing, there's probably no
1: <laughs> So, uh, Thank you. I'm going to bring an one. So, so, Richard, does that mean there may be a god? Logically,
5: there may be a, a leprechaun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> ah, uh, if I might say, yes,
2: you can't let Richard get away with that. That's a ridiculous remark. <laughs> no, no, no. That is a ridiculous remark. Okay. You, uh, cannot, you cannot confuse the god of classical theism, which has animated the whole of Western philosophy, with a leprechaun. And I'm surprised at you. Why
1: sorry. Anthony says
3: you, you can. Look, uh, first, uh, firstly, with uh, great respect to Charles Moore, it's he who's uh, rather confused about the atheist bus. Uh, we did want to say there is no god on the bus. And um, it turned out that the Advertising Standards Authority uh, <laughs> required of us that we, we insert a probably there, despite the fact that, uh, that the very many theist adverts on buses say things like, Jesus saves, and so on, rather
1: unequivocally. Okay. Uh, thank you for that question. One over here, please. Uh, down. At the, yes.
0: Hello. Um, how can you advocate the fact that my child could have an entirely different education to their neighbor? just because they've gone to a faith school? And how can you ethically advocate that I will be governed by laws that I don't believe in because I'm a secular humanist?
1: Thank you for that. The person with the microphone, uh, the person with the microphone Yep. Um, I have a question for uh, Charles Moore and Richard Harries. Um,
4: do you think that um, if your subtle scholarly, nuanced brand of religion was the norm, um, uh, Richard Dawkins and A.C. Grayling wouldn't have happened to write their books um, the point is, I attended a lecture at a t- top British university last year given by the head of Answers in Genesis, uh, Ken Ham who was not only preaching scientific ignorance he was also preaching right-wing bigotry from uh, the grave of Jerry Falwell um, Why shouldn't we get angry about that?
1: Uh, okay, um, I'm going to ask the side to come in first on this I
4: don't believe that I was arguing for a subtle and nuanced brand of Christianity. I think I was simply arguing for a mainstream traditional form of Christianity. And, uh, of course, you're right to attack people like the the person you mentioned. Um, But I I, I don't think we should allow ourselves to be marginalized by thinking we're a sort of clever, clever, super modern version of Christianity that's being put forward uh, at least by me. This is just what has been put forward by mainstream churches throughout history. And one of the things that I think is quite wrong about the Dawkins grading argument uh, is to characterize it's the other way around from what you're saying. They're taking people like mad creationists and they're trying to project that onto the whole of the Christian faith for two thousand years. That seems to me a total misrepresentation. Richard
2: um, I think we need to emphasize, of course, there's a very great deal of bad religion around, of bigotry, wherever it appears, needs to be uh, uh, attacked. But the debate tonight is not about bad religion. It's a question of whether the new atheism has slipped into a kind of fundamentalism. That is what the debate uh, is is about. Uh, Atheism faced with certain forms of religion is a kind of purification, is a necessary purification. And I made it clear at the beginning, there are many forms of atheism I deeply
5: respect. You, you well, to- yes, uh, um, on this question, which the, the, the question I've raised about the good and the bad um, kinds of religion, um, I think he's absolutely right. It would be marvelous if all religious people were like our two panelists here tonight. And it may be right that that, that, that deserves the title mainstream in some historical periods. I rather doubt that. But the fact is it doesn't today. And if you go to the United States, as I, as I often do, the, the huge majority of religious people are just the kind of religious people you don't want. And that's, the, the, that's the, the reason why I found it necessary to write The God Delusion. The question is absolutely right. There would have been no need if everybody was like Charles Moore and Richard Harris. But unfortunately, they're not. To pick up on the Cluedo jibe that uh, Charles Moore... Raised, or that the Reverend Green did it. In America, he's not even called the Reverend Green. He's called Mr. Green. He's not allowed to be called the Reverend Green because, he, because in America it's inconceivable that a clergyman could possibly do anything wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anthony.
3: I mean, just, just to revert to the rhetorical point about the, the name calling which is going on, fundamentalist atheists and, and so on. The, the, the truth of the matter is that um, people who are troubled by the criticisms leveled at them really do set the bar very, very low indeed as to what they will accept in the way of criticism. So if, if they're spoken to rather robustly, you know, pe- pe- people who criticize um, religion are said to be intolerant of religion uh, as though a physicist who doesn't believe in magic is intolerant of magic. It's, it's a, a, you know, a, a, an attempt to try to displace Um, the the criticism by attacking the criticiser. I mean, one thing that was very noticeable about uh, Charles Moore's contribution this evening was that it was very largely an ad hominem attack on Richard Dawkins, not really an attack on the ideas.
1: Anthony, um, uh, we're going to have a question. There's a lot of questions over here. I'm very keen to get some questions down over on this side here, but a gentleman here first. Uh, Good, and then over here, please. Professor Dawkins, you are arguably the world's leading apologist for atheism, and you have been invited on several occasions by arguably the world's leading Christian academic apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig, to engage in debate. I would like to know why this is not an example of the new atheist doing what Lord Harries has described as avoiding the strongest possible arguments from the opposition. Okay, thank, uh, you. thank you. That's a very straight question. Over here now, and then at the back, please. Let's take question number two at the back, please. Yep.
3: Uh, atheist fundamentalism is not a new phenomenon. If Professor Dawkins had read history of Russia and China, he would know that atheism uh, conducted. A, programs of violence against people of faith. Have you a comment making that,
1: please? Okay, we'll take uh, Richard first on why you're not going to apparently um, prepared to debate against that lady. Then we'll come over here and we'll finish up on the question there about Stalin's gulags.
5: I have always said when invited to do debates that I will be happy to debate a bishop, a cardinal, a pope, an archbishop. Indeed, I have done both. Um... But that I don't take on creationists and I don't take on people whose only claim to fame is that they are professional debaters. They've got to have something more than that. I'm busy.
1: And if she said she was busy too, you would say, it, it's a, it was a he actually, but oh, <laughs> oh my goodness, what a boo. Uh, uh, over here, moving, moving straight on. Yeah, now uh, the response on Russia, Richard the implication was made that uh, the
5: monstrosity, the the, the awfulness of Stalin's Russia, um, Mao's China, had something to do with atheism. These were dreadful people having dreadful political philosophy which they uh, ruthlessly enforced in their countries. It is incidentally true that they happened to be atheists. It's incidentally true that Hitler, Stalin and Saddam Hussein all had moustaches but it's nothing to do with the, either their moustaches or, in the case of um, Stalin, his atheism. Hitler wasn't an atheist. Okay. Yep. La- lady,
1: yes. Excellent. Lady first.
0: How would you respond to a sign that I saw outside a what appeared to be sort of a mainstream church um, in the UK, in the south-east, um, saying, uh, don't think, just believe?
1: Don't think, just believe. Uh, and one over here, Yes? Second question, And let's take the third question. Go, yeah, gentleman here. Uh, Could I ask each side to give an account of the criteria they use for assessing truth?
0: Okay. And then
1: to uh, justify that against the charge of fundamentalism. All right. And while we're doing this, and the third question is doing it, can we please make certain that you cast your votes? Uh, The votes please. Uh, Everyone clear about the votes? Hope so. Questioner here. Yes, please.
0: Um, Richard Dawkins. As has already been said, um, you're quite happy with the atheist bus campaign um, wording. Yeah, after all, you endorsed it. It said, um, God probably doesn't exist. Now, I'm a bit sad. I brought a dictionary along with me, which uh, suggests that someone of that point of view is an agnostic. Doesn't that mean that... It's actually an agnostic bus campaign. You're actually agnostic, and you're probably not the best qualified person to oppose the motion tonight.
1: Um, Excellent, excellent. Wonder what school you went to. Yes, uh, let's begin, I think, on this side, uh, in fairness. Uh, Criteria for truth, very briefly, the the
2: total human experience, not uh, just what we might derive from... Science, but our experience of beauty, our our experience of conscious, our experience of of human relationships. Uh, All this we we put together and and wonder what the heck it's all about. So it's the total range of of human experience.
1: Uh, Charles, what are you going to pick up on? I, I just
4: wanted to say that I'm interested by the way these questions have gone because it illustrates the problem we have with the whole of this debate. Which is—it's always a serious question that's impossible to answer. And indeed, when the serious question is raised, the chairman says, "Oh, that's very difficult. And let's go on to another one." Um, uh, the, the, and the trouble—and and this is why I worry about the new, athe- the, the fundamentalist atheist—is because what it is is using the method of scorn in order not to have the argument. It's always saying, "Here's the ridiculous example. Here's the reductio ad absurdum. Here is the, the bad, the bad behavior instead of trying to actually to address and talk about these questions that keep coming from so many people in the hall tonight and so many people all over the world who actually want to think about the answers. Okay.
1: Uh, thank you very much. I, I don't in fact think, Charles, I don't quite accept that because I think you have had every chance to uh, come back and answer at length. You haven't always chosen to do so. Are there any other of the questions that were asked in that batch that you'd like to come back on? I'm
4: not complaining personally. I'm just, I haven't been persecuted. I fear that the whole discussion about these issues is constantly misrepresented by the form that it takes and by the type of argument that sometimes comes from the atheist fundamentalist.
1: Okay. Um, well, that, the, yes, that's... Can we, can yes, can, Richard. Can,
4: just just
2: uh, Earlier on, Richard made a, a wonderfully telling point I thought when he said he'd never heard from a, a, a pulpit the remark on the balance of probabilities. Well, I can honestly say when I've, I think I've read nearly all your books, I've never read the statement on the balance of probabilities <laughs> there might not be a God.
5: What about the bus no.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll eat my words if you can point that.
5: Well, but I it, can. Uh, so,
2: they're so definite.
5: No, no, chapter four of the God Delusion is called... Why there almost certainly is no God. Um, um, uh, I, have, I, I, I have put, put forward a seven-point scale from one total certainty there is a God to seven total certainty there is no
1: God, and I place myself as a number six point five. <laughs> um, so, uh, chapter four, verse two. Do you want to come back on that?
5: Well.
2: Uh, That's not quite the same as the balance of probability. You know, it's almost certainly probable it's not
5: quite the same, the balance of probability. if if by that you mean we should be saying 50%, I'm certainly not happy to go for 50%. I think I've... (laughs) Can I... Can we just... You
2: you asked a very interesting earlier question about experience of atheism. I draw a distinction between intellectual atheism and experiential atheism, uh, the kind of experience the poet Edwin Muir had once in a bus when... The human beings in front of him were suddenly stripped of any sense of being human. Now, I do think uh, that that is a totally devastating experience. You sometimes get it uh, after a Samuel Beckett play. Um, I mean, a wonderful playwright, but you suddenly feel human beings have been stripped of anything to do with the spirit. Now, actually, I think many religious believers go through that kind of experience of atheism, where the world suddenly seems totally devoid and empty of God. And it might have been that experience of Jesus on the cross, you know, when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think that sense of experiential atheism is actually much more disturbing than intellectual atheism.
3: Now I'd like to answer the questions, if I may. Don't think, just believe. Yes, that's one of the explanations for the persistence of religion. It Reminds me of my favorite um, joke from Bertrand Russell who said, most people would rather die than think and most people do. That explains (laughs) (laughs) that. My God been a a challenge to explain my criteria for truth. Truth is a very very hard thing to find except in local empirical circumstances much much more significant than that is rationality rationality is the key to behave to think and to believe rationally on the basis of the evidence that is the surest path towards truth you have to remember what Voltaire said I will defend with my life the person who is seeking the truth but uh, I will not be so keen on the person who claims to have it Finally, there is one big difference between Richard Dawkins and myself on the question of the 6.5 and agnosticism. I am not one little bit agnostic about fairies or pixies or goblins and so on for all the other supernatural agencies that might be invoked. Don't forget, by the way, that fairies were very, very widely believed in in this country until pretty recently. Now, I'm not an agnostic about that, and for exactly the same kind of rational, I hope, reasons, I'm not agnostic about deities and gods and goddesses and the rest of it.
1: Uh, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> now we're going to now have the sum-ups and there's a premium here on doing it in two minutes each. I'm going to ask Richard Dawkins to begin by summing up um, everything you've heard and everything you want to say.
5: I suppose the uh, the two main issues that have come up are first the idea that we on this side are somehow bleak and empty and... Um, the distinction that Richard Harris made about experiential atheism, the sense of despair, which is supposed to afflict us when we lose faith. As Anthony Grayling has just said, it's nothing like that at all. On the contrary, it's a sense of release. It's a sense of freedom from an oppressive overlookedness you somehow realize that you are free, you're in control of your own life. You are looking out at the universe. I know that I'm going to die, and it's it's finite. All the more reason to appreciate it, to enjoy it, and to exult in it. Now, <laughs> because, um, the, the other... The the, the other issue is the the narrow one of the motion. Are are we um, fundamentalist? I think it's probably fair to say that some of us are passionate and that we are uh, very, um, yes, deeply passionate. We care deeply about, for example, the truth, uh, which I would define as that which is supported by objectively discernible evidence. But please don't mistake passion for bigotry, for narrowness, for arrogance, for uh, for fundamentalism. You can be passionate without being fundamentalist. There really is a, an important difference. I'm happy, indeed proud, to be passionate. I'm happy to be passionate about the truth. I'm happy, I hope, to speak clearly, but none of that implies fundamentalism in the sense of uh, extremism or in the sense of of implacable devotion to some kind of holy book.
4: I I was very glad to hear what Richard Dawkins said just then, but I don't think that is the characteristic of his writing and preaching. Um, And and this is what we complain about with atheist fundamentalism, because though it's admitted that there may be a God, it's then immediately spoken all the time as if there couldn't possibly be one. And also, uh, no attempt is made to understand what religion is as it's understood by its adherents. Richard spoke eloquently of that sense of freedom. I do assure you that Christians believe that freedom. They they experience that freedom. And I do assure you also that when they uh, lie down and look at the Milky Way, um, they have comparable experiences, but I, I think that they have an experience which goes a bit deeper and goes a bit further about what they see. And that experience is summed up in the last line of Perhaps the greatest poem ever written, Dante's Divine Comedy, when he speaks of the love which moves the sun and the other stars. And that is the case uh, which we feel is consistently misrepresented, uh, and the case which, if the atheist fundamentalists had the intellectual honesty which they say they did, they would listen to that with more respect rather than traducing
1: it. Thank you. A.C. Grayling, summing up against the motion.
3: Well, Charles Moore um, reminds us, and I mentioned this in my opening comments, that uh, a standard charge laid against people who don't have a religious outlook is that they don't understand the religious outlook, that we don't don't appreciate um, how it feels to be religious and to have that way of looking at things. And I pointed out that the great majority of people who don't have a religious outlook used to have one. Most atheists are people who have won through to uh, an open-minded, free-thinking way of, of looking at the world from having been brought up in one or another religion, their parents' religion usually, and had it inculcated into them when they were very young. So we do understand it. And it may very well be that we understand it all too well. It's not that we don't understand it, we understand it all too well, which is why we disagree with it. That's point number one. And point number two, uh, um, Charles and others uh, say "What we, we should try to, to, to make some sense of the, the inner meaning, the inner workings of uh, a, a religious outlook. The problem is this, that religion, for somebody who is critical of its premises, is in the same sort of position as astrology, now, astrology bases itself on the idea that what we can see from planet Earth in the way of heavenly bodies has an influence on our character and our destiny. Once you've come to the conclusion that that just ain't so, then there's no point in getting involved in all the complexities of the different astrological theories. Once you've come to the, the, the view that this is just an untenable position, no point in going into all the things that uh, Charles Moore says we should get into in trying to understand that, the, the internal feeling of, of that position. Fact is that rejecting a certain view, rejecting a certain way of looking at the world entails nothing further other than a responsibility to begin to think carefully about what you do think and why, how you would make a good responsible case for that, and how you would live responsibly and well in a world where it is our job as as human beings to um, make the best fist we can of our endowment
1: in nature. A.C. Grayling, thank you very much indeed.
2: I'd just take the opportunity, if I may, to uh, address the last question which was asked from the audience about whether Charles and myself are not really on the defensive on this issue now. Um, And strangely, I think I would want to admit that in a sense uh, we are, because on the one hand, uh, we're battling against uh, creationist religious fundamentalists, and on the other hand, Uh, against the new atheists. And I've suggested at the beginning the sense in which they feed each other and it's therefore very, very difficult to get across the case for classical Christian uh, uh, thought in the Western uh, tradition. And If I might say so, I think Anthony uh, slipped into that again earlier on where he put together not believing in fairies and not believing in what he called deities. Uh, But in that sense, the early Christians, as I said earlier, uh, were atheists. They didn't believe in deities. They believed uh, in the uh, the God of classical Western theism, who is not an existent in the world of existence, not a thing in the world of th- things, but the ground and goal of all existence, in whom all things exist. John of Damascus in the eighth century, and no doubt I might be scorned for quoting somebody such a long time ago, but John of Damascus in the eighth century. Uh, great bastion of Christian Orthodox, and East said what God is in himself is totally incomprehensible and unknowable and it's that sense of the, of the mystery of God. We can use words about God and deity and deities but in the end we're talking about something which is beyond uh, human words and I think it's that sense of, of, of mystery which both religious fundamentalism and uh, the new atheism somehow uh, fail to point to in any way.
1: Thank you. Um, and now uh, before I wish you all uh, a, a very safe onward journey and thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed for supporting tonight. Uh the online vote uh was uh for the uh, motion was uh twelve uh, agnostics. Uh, 35 uh, for it, and 877 against the motion. Which could mean that atheists go online. Um, and uh, the uh, don't knows amongst the cognoscenti, those uh, with the presence of mind, the consciousness, uh, the belief uh, to be here tonight. Uh, 389 didn't know before the motion, and now only 85 don't know the truth. Uh for three hundred and thirty-three before and six hundred and seventy-five against, after everything they've heard, those four voting for the motion have gone up. They've gone up from three hundred and thirty-three to three hundred and sixty-three. Uh, those against from six seven five up to ten hundred sorry one thousand and seventy. <laughs> sorry, one thousand seventy. so six seven five to one thousand and 70, and therefore I declare that the vote has been carried against.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback, what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over our 20-year catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then just head over to intelligencesquared.com.